Um, welcome, and uh, you are invited to join with us in our potluck afterwards. And in case you're wondering, yes, I've got many comments. I am much more colorful shirt than normal. And you can thank Hortense. She brought it back from Africa as a gift. I don't know where she, where she at. Is she? She's not even here? She's not even in the room? Well, she brought it back from Africa as a gift from Cameroon, and I thought, what better way to show my gratitude? So um, I'm just thankful for the diversity of styles and colors and different tribes and tongues and nations that God is, is rescuing and bringing to himself, and we get to be a part of that. Um, we are part of those other nations ourselves. The gospel originally came to the Jews. And so we get to be a part of that. And I, and I love that we can express that joy that, that Jesus has in bringing many nations to himself. So turn your Bibles to Revelation 10. We are going to be continuing in our series in the book of Revelation. We've been going through Revelation so far, I think for the last about three months or so. Last week we saw in, in Revelation 8 and 9, the opening of, I mean, the finishing the opening of the seventh seal and the blowing of seven trumpets or six trumpets. And now is this interlude between the blowing of the sixth trumpet and the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which will come in chapter 11. And so now there's an interlude where God has something to communicate to his people. Um, so turn your Bibles to Revelation 10. This is God's holy inspired word meant not just for the people on that day, but meant for us today and for all of the church. This is his word. Let's read together. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write it down. And the angel, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up. What the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea is what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just As he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, thank you that in these visions that you communicated to John, in this imagery, you have something to communicate to us. 
That, Lord, what, what might seem confusing at first, Lord, you desire to make something clear about yourself. So, Father, we pray that you would give us the gift of your spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds, that, that you would make clear what you want to make clear, that you would impress it on our hearts, that you would impress it on our minds. Lord, enable all of us to be attentive to your word. God, these are your life-giving words. And God, enable me to preach your word by your spirit and by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, there was a movie that came out. I think it was three years ago. It was called um, The BFG. And it stands for The Big Friendly Giant, in case you're wondering what that is. It's a Disney movie. It was based on a book by Roald Dahl. And it told the story of how a young girl... Her parents died in a car crash, and she was now living in an orphanage, and she, she was troubled. Um, she was troubled by all kinds of bad dreams and insomnia, and so she would stay awake at night reading by the window and watching out because she couldn't get to sleep. She had lots of fear and, and nightmares. One day around 3 a.m., she looks out the window, and she sees this large elderly giant and then he notices that she saw him and then he captures her it's kind of a frightening thing and he takes her to giant country because he must not be allowed to reveal the existence of giants and he explains to this little girl Sophie that she has to stay with him the rest of her life because she saw him she can't reveal the existence so he also explains that don't go outside because you're gonna put yourself at risk if you go out in the open, there's other giants that live in this giant country, and they're all man-eaters, and they like children, and not in the, in the pleasant way. And so the story meanders, and she's almost eaten, but she stands up to this giant, stands up to these bigger bullies, and in the end, everything works out. The story's got a lot of hidden messages like most kids' movies. It's got a lot of different messages about not fearing And it features both Sophie and the BFG standing up to and overcoming their fears. And it's an interesting tale, but you can tell that it was written to communicate something. It was a story, and it's an entertaining story, Um, even if it's a little scary for younger kids, and, and I'm not recommending it for young kids, it might frighten them. But it's meant to communicate something, it's actually meant to alleviate fear. It's meant to show this giant, and it's meant to alleviate fear, and it's meant to show that she can overcome her fears, and he can overcome fears, and it's it's meant to actually give a sense of safety and to communicate and cultivate courage to face problems in life. Often stories are meant to communicate something. They're images, they're pictures, they're entertaining stories, but they're meant to communicate something more. Um, God, he, he is the ultimate author. He's the best author that there is. He, he gave us the gift of communicating. He gave us the gift of telling stories and, and painting pictures. And he is the best artist. And he relays things through words and he relays things through stories. And so this is a vision that John actually saw. He saw this vision, but this vision is not just a neat vision that you're thinking, whoa, there's this big angel. And this angel, he's got one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, and he's this giant. But it's actually meant to communicate things to us. This this imagery that God gives us is meant to give us courage. It's actually meant to communicate something about the firmness of his plan, something about the stability, the the security that we have in him and in his plans. What we've seen so far is that God's people, as we've gone through the book of Revelation so far, um, what we've seen is that God's people are not immune to suffering. They're not immune to tribulation. 
But in the midst of suffering, in the midst of tribulation, God and his plans stand firm and secure. We saw in Revelation 2 when John was addressing the churches, when God was addressing the churches through John, and he gave a message to the church in Smyrna. We see that the church was not going to be taken out of tribulation. In Revelation 2, 11, 2, 10 and 11, it says, Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And then again, when we continue to read on in Revelation chapter 6, when he opens the fifth seal, it says, I saw under the altar of the souls those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. The church is not immune, not pulled out of suffering, not immune to martyrdom. Revelation 7, one of the elders came up to John, he says, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And he says, I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones, listen, coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And then again in, in, in Revelation 9, when we see this, this picture of these heinous demonic monsters that are, that are unleashed, that God, he takes off all restraints and these monsters are op- opened up from the pit and they come out. And, but here's the restraint that they were given in Revelation 9. It says, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And the implication is that others are sealed by God because we saw that previously that God's saints are sealed by him. They're not removed from the tribulation, but they ultimately will not be harmed. Believers are not absent from tribulation. They're present in the midst of these things. They're present in the midst of suffering and trials. But here's the thing we can be sure of. Here's, here's why we're given this divine interlude in Revelation chapter 10. It's, it's the pause button is hit again. And you'll see that pattern repeat in between the 6th and 7th, not only of the seals and then the trumpets. You'll see the same thing with the bowls. And it's because God wants to instruct and care for his people in the midst of that. Just like he wanted to instruct and care for his people and say, hey, in the midst of these seals being unleashed, before the end comes, you need to know that you've been sealed. And now he wants his people to know that his plans for his people are secure in the midst of tribulation. That's really the big idea of this passage. He wants his people to see something from this imagery that his plans and his purposes are secure in the midst of tribulation. Whenever you use scripture, it's important to read it in context. The lamb, we'd seen, he was worthy to take the scroll. And then in chapter 6 of Revelation, he opens the scroll and he does that. God removes these restraints. There was that pause in chapter 7 between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. God wanted to reassure his people, to comfort them that they are sealed even though these things are shaken and that no one else can stand. God's people will stand secure because they're sealed. Chapter 8, the count of the seals resumed. The blowing God's seven trumpets in response to the how long, O Lord, will you carry out till you carry out justice? And so we see God's justice being carried out. In chapter 9, we saw these demonic forces. About a third of people are killed, and yet people do not repent. They stay in their idolatry now. 
we see this chapter 10 all the way up to 11 and 14 is this other interlude. And what it's communicating, what God is giving us a picture of, is that his plans are secure. His plans and his purposes for his people are secure. Now you'd be wondering, where am I getting that from? What in the world? What? This is just about some big angel standing there, right, with a scroll in his hand. But if you remember, the scroll means something. What we saw was that scroll is the scroll of all of God's plans and all of his purposes. That was the ultimate scroll with the seals on it that God sealed up and that only the lamb was worthy. And yet the lamb opened the scroll. Now the scroll is open. And so a portion, a little scroll, a portion of that scroll is given to this angel. And this angel now is standing with God's purposes and plans in his hand. This angel is sent down to the earth. This angel is sent with God's plans and his purposes to show that even though tribulation is swirling all around in the the chapter preceding and then in chapters following, tribulation is swirling all around. But in the midst of things, we can see that God, his plans and purposes on the earth and through his people are secure. There's no wrath for God's people. There's nothing to fear. His people may be martyred. There's no need to fear. This is written for our encouragement. It's written to give us courage. It doesn't matter what tribulation or demonic monsters might rage around us in the midst of tribulation. There is calm in this imagery. There is this settled, sure picture of calm that you get in chapter 10. You've just seen all this raging happening. Now that all kind of dissipates. It all disappears. It all fades in the background. You don't even see that anymore in this image, in this vision. Yet this angel comes to earth, the same earth where all these... Trumpets are already sounded and these demons are raging everywhere. And yet, we don't see that in this picture. There's safety, there's security here. And what we do see is this angel going completely unchallenged. And what we see is, is the first main point there is that God's plans and his purposes stand firm. That's, that's a picture of this angel standing firm. Look down your Bibles, saw this mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his pillar legs like pillars of fire. John's viewpoint has shifted now. He's, he's on the earth, and this angel descends, and he descends enrobed in the glory of God with this, this glory cloud around this angel, and he's, he's crowned. He is a mighty angel. He's a powerful angel. He's, he's given... He's crowned with the promises of God, the rainbow, which symbolizes the promises of God. So he's, he's got the glory of God surrounding him. He's, he's given the promises of God, and he comes down firmly with the glory cloud, the rainbow over his head, and his face is bright, just like Moses' face reflected the glory of God and the brightness of God, and so his face is shining like the sun, and it says his legs are like pillars of fire. It's vivid imagery. This is a mighty, powerful angel that God has sent with all of his power and glory He's the picture, really, of supreme authority. That's what you're seeing here. You're seeing a mighty angel coming down, and everything else is fading in the background. You don't, you don't hear of any of those other seven trumpets. You don't see these locust beings and all these weird creatures. What you see is this massive angel, and he is shining, his face shining like the sun, and his legs are like pillars of fire. It reminds us of the pillars that, that guided God's people through the wilderness and Egypt, This is the ultimate picture of authority and might in God's presence come to earth. And now this prophecy of Revelation that was 
given from God the Father to Jesus Christ. Now it's given to an angel, and this angel is holding it. Now look down in verse 2. It says, he has his little scroll open in his hand. And again, the scroll, and this is a part, a portion of God's plans. not all of God's plans, but it's a part of God's plans that this angel has, is bringing to earth because God's plans are not only in earth, but they're for all the cosmos. And so this angel brings God's plans to the earth, and he holds a scroll, but it's no longer closed. It's open in his hand. And then this, this imagery, he sets his foot, his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. He's a gigantic angel. It's this imagery that it probably would have brought to mind in John's readers' minds, the, the image of the Colossus of Rhodes. It was this, this huge statue that was created about 100 feet tall, and legend had that it, it spanned across the harbor and ships would grow, grow, grow through it. Now they found that really it just stood on the side of the harbor, but it was this massive statue. It was one of the, the ancient wonders, uh, man-made wonders of the world. It lay in pieces by John's day, but it's still, you can have big pieces like the foot and the head all over the harbor, all over that port. And yet this mighty angel, he's standing like the Colossus with his feet straddling the land and the sea. You know, whenever the, whenever the Bible talks about something being under someone's feet, it's a picture of authority. The fact that they've conquered. And so this angel, he's putting his, his feet on the land and the sea. He, he's He's showing the supreme authority of God, that God and his plans are secure, stable, firm. Psalm 8, 6 says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This angel has dominion. The people in chapter 9 remained defiantly rebellious and idolatrous. That's how chapter 9 ended, and yet... There's no picture of defiance that stands against this angel. There is no picture of rebellion. This angel is standing and he's dominating. He's dominating every realm. He's dominating the realm of the land. He's dominating the realm of the sea, the place where all the plagues have come already in the previous chapters. He's dominating the realm of the, of the land and the sea. And then it says something, he's, he's calling out to heaven and then we'll see later he raises his right hand to heaven and so we see all really the realms of God's creation. This angel is dominating. He has mastery over the heaven and the earth and the oceans and is given by God. And he's holding God's plans. This would have meant something to the church in that day. They would have been wondering, in the midst of all this tribulation, in the midst of all the trials, the fact that you told us that we're going to endure tribulation, what will happen to us and what will happen to your plans? Because at times when we experience suffering and tribulation, we can feel like God's plans are not going to be carried out and that we can begin to worry and wonder, God, are, are, you, are your plans really sure? Are your plans really true? You, you ever feel that way? You ever, you ever wonder when you hit tribulation, trials, suffering, you ever wonder if God's plans will literally be carried out. And so God gives this image to the church to see that no, his plans are firm and secure. Leon Morris says, the world despised Christians as members of a little, insignificant church. It held all that they stood for as of no account. But their faith was based on the word of God. And that word, listen to this, that word is in the hands of this colossal figure who though only dimly seen through the enveloping cloud, spans both land and sea. God's word 
is supremely significant. It towers above all the affairs of men. It's meant to be encouragement to the church. It's meant to be encouragement to us to see that his plans, his words reign and stand firm. And this, this angel calls out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And when he does that, these seven thunders sound. The New American Standard puts it a little bit more literally. It says they, they uttered their voices. It's the same word for a thunderous voice that Jesus heard when, when he was in the middle of teaching. And he kind of has this little prayer aside to God in John 12. He says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. And I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. In other words, we're saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has come not for my sake, come for my sake, but for yours, your sakes. God was speaking for the sake of his people. And when he speaks, it's final. Here in Revelation 10, it's God's voice that thunders in reply, thunders from heaven. What's that an image of? It's the fact that, that God and his authority is supreme. That he rules over all. This angel, he's got his feet on the land and sea and his hand raised, God thundering in reply. It's meant to communicate that God's purposes are firm and irrefutable. No matter what rage is around, all you see is this image. And then we see in verses 4 to 7 that we might not be shown all of his plans, but God's plans for all of creation have been revealed in the mystery of the gospel. They've been revealed in the mystery of the gospel. His plans are not uncertain. His plans and his purposes have been revealed in the gospel, and they're going to be fulfilled. But that doesn't mean we're going to know everything. Look down at verse 4. These seven thunders, these, this thunderous voice of God, this perfect voice of God comes out of the sky. And look down at verse 4. It says, when they had sounded, I was about to write. Because remember, John was told earlier to write down what you see. And so he's being obedient. He's got some kind of book, and he's writing everything he sees because he doesn't want to get anything wrong. He wants to record what he sees perfectly, and so he's beginning to write. But then he hears this voice from heaven, the divine voice coming down and saying, seal up what these seven thunders have said. Don't write it down. And you think, what in the world's going on here? Why, why did God even show or let John hear the thunders to begin with if he's going to say, don't write it down? And then why did he communicate this to the church? And he could have said, John, don't tell anybody that it happened at all, Right? You see, no portion of Scripture is wasted and is meant to communicate something to us as well. In the midst of trials and tribulation, God's plan stands firm. But you know what? We won't know everything. We won't know everything, and that's what he's communicating here. There are parts of his plan that are not for us to know and that we won't know, but we can trust that his plan still stands secure and that we'll see in a moment... The mystery of the gospel, will his plan will ultimately be fulfilled. His ultimate plan for all of creation, to redeem a people for himself, to redeem all of creation, will be fulfilled. But you know what? We won't know all the details. There are things that, that God does not share with us, and that's what we're seeing here. He doesn't reveal everything, but he reveals enough for us to trust in him, enough for us to know him and live confidently by faith. And what he's saying is, you know, not everything belongs to us. The hidden things belong to God. There are some things God wants us to know in your life, Christian, in your life and the church, although you can be sure about his plans, there will be things that you are clueless about and you will not know and you're called to trust that won't be revealed to you. 
There will be times when you will wonder, what is going on? God, I don't understand. And he says, yep, that's okay. But you can trust that my plans, my mysteries will be carried out. They're not hidden from God. There are things that you might not know about the future, lots of them. But don't misread things. That doesn't mean God doesn't know the future. In fact, this scripture tells us he does. He's just sealed it up. There's things he won't tell. Not until that final day, and maybe not at all. The future is not uncertain. It's not unknown, even though it's unknown to us to some degree. But what he does communicate, he does give to us, is something that is sure. His plans are secure, and they're sure. And then he explains what his plans are. Remember, this this scroll is open. He's not trying to hide things from us that we need to know. This scroll has already been opened, and it stands open for everyone to read, for John to see. He can read what's on that scroll, what's on God's plans. Look down at verse 5, what happens? This angel stands on the sea, and he raises his, on the land, and he raises his right hand to heaven. He swears, just like we are used to doing when you go into a courtroom. Well, that actually comes from the Bible. It comes from back in Isaiah when the Lord has sworn by his right hand, and we still do that. We go before a judge, and, and they make us put up our right hand because that is the hand of strength. That's the hand that they would conquer with and armies would, would, would raise a sword with. And so it's the hand. We say, hey, this is a testimony that the, we're telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. And so this angel, he raises his hand. This word he gives, it applies to the land. And this is repeated three times, that he's standing on the land and the sea. And that's because it applies to everyone in every area on both land and sea. And he raises his hand to heaven and he swears by him who lives forever and ever. How can we be sure that God is going to carry out his plans? How can we be sure that his plans are going to be fulfilled? Well, we'll look how what he swears by in verse 6. He swears by him who lives forever and ever. God holds all of eternity, and he also swears by God who created heaven and what is in it, and earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and there will be no more delay. You can be sure that God will not delay in his plans because we have have a promise from the eternal God who lives forever and ever. He's the creator of all things. There's no higher word. He holds the future. There's no power greater than God. He alone creates heaven and earth and this colossal angel as well. And the church is receiving this message but it would have been sure and their hope and their future would have been secure as they heard this and they saw this image. It's an unbreakable oath. It's backed by God's power and the God of the universe. There'd be no delay in carrying out God's plans. And you have to wonder, well, what are God's plans that are gonna be carried out? Well, look down at verse seven. Look down at verse 7. It tells you in verse 7, it says, But in that days, here's the promise. There'll be no more delay, but in that days of the trumpet, the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel. So when that seventh trumpet sounds and ushers in the end of all time, it says, now listen, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Now what is that? What is that that the angel is swearing there'd be no delay in being fulfilled? That, what is that mystery of God? Now, if you've read the Bible before and you read the New Testament, you probably have heard that word mystery before. That mystery of God. Now, what is that mystery of God that was announced before to his prophets, this plan that's going to be fulfilled? Well, it's none other than the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus spoke about that in Matthew 13. 
Jesus says, answered them, and he says, to you it's been granted to know, listen, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it's not been granted. When Jesus came, the first thing he proclaimed was the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the unfolding, the unveiling of the mystery that the kingdom of God has come through him, through this good news. He came proclaiming the good news. The Apostle Paul, he wrote about the mystery of the gospel being disclosed, same wording here, through the prophetic writings in Romans, 1, I mean Romans 16, 25. He wrote, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, And the preaching of Jesus Christ, now listen closely, according to the revelation of what? Of the mystery. Of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, just like like John's being told, which has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. This mystery that this angel is promising, there will be no delay. This mystery will be brought about. It's the mystery of God's plans in the gospel. And so the church, as they're hearing this, is saying, amen, thank you. We have a promise that the mystery of God will be completely fulfilled, just like he announced through his prophets. And we know that because later on in Revelation eleven fifteen, it says the seventh angel sounded... And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. What is that? That's that's the kingdom that Jesus came preaching, the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You see, God will bring about all of his purposes and his plans, no matter what. The mystery of God will be fulfilled just like he announced and actually that word announced there, it's an interesting little word. The ESV translates announced. I like how the, the New American Standard translates a little closer to the original. It says, as he preached to his servants. And there's a little footnote if you have the New American Standard Bible. And it says, as he preached the good news. Because it's the same word used for preaching the good news there. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he preached the good news to his servants, the prophets. What does it mean? So we can be sure that in these in the last days, in the end times, God's going to bring about the fulfillment of the gospel of the kingdom of God, just like he said. The kingdom's going to come in complete fulfillment one day. You can be sure. You might not understand everything. You might not have everything figured out, but his plans stand firm, and he's going to bring about his plans through the good news, the mystery of the gospel. What does that mean for us? It means the end of all opposition to God will be sure. The end of evil and suffering and sin and torment God's mystery mystery will be fulfilled. His plans, the gospel, will be fulfilled completely. His kingdom will come. That's that's what we pray, right? We pray, God, your kingdom come. And the angel raises his right hand and says, I have God's plans. And let me tell you, I swear by the living God who lives forever, his kingdom will come. It will come to pass. John's readers could take confidence as purposes from ages past would come about. There'd be no delay. In the meanwhile... There's a call here. You see, God calls his servant to be a part of carrying out and fulfilling the plan. And so what we really see in, in verses 8 to 11, not only have, are God's plans secure and do they stand firm, not only are his plans in the, in the mystery of the gospel, will they be fulfilled, but what we see is that his people are a part of carrying out his plan because 
this angel is not just standing there. This, a voice was commanded, commanded John to told him to go and take this scroll. Look down your Bible in verse 8. God, God commands this heavenly voice, says, I heard from heaven, spoke to me again, saying, go and take the scroll that's in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. John, God spoke to John. He tells him what to do. And he says, John, go and take this little scroll. Go and take my plans. I want you to go and take my plans and I want you to consume them. I want you to eat them. I want them to be a part of you. I want them to fill you with satisfaction and delight. I want you to feast on my plans. I want you to be a part of my plans. In this angel, he stands the symbol of conquering authority of these plans of God which include the mystery of God and the gospel that are to be taken by the servant of God. This, this scroll, though, remember, it's, it's open. It says again in verse 8, it repeats that. This, take this scroll that is open in the hand of the angel. God's purposes and his plans and the mystery of the gospel are not hidden. They're open. And we're to take them and eat them. And so John, what's he going to do? I can, I can imagine if you had this colossal angel his, his legs are flaming. His face is glowing. He's got a halo of a rainbow over his head. He's enrobed in a cloud. He has a voice that is like a roaring lion. And, you know, here's John, a mere man. And what would you do if you were told to go and take the scroll from his hand? I'm like, yeah, right. Sure. But John doesn't hesitate. You know why? It's because he knows that the voice he's hearing is the one that created this colossal creature. God's commanding him. God's commanding him. And God's voice is far more fearful, far more powerful than this angel. And so what does John do? He goes. You know, would you rather face God or this colossal angel? He says, so I went to the angel. And I loved it just, and so I told him, give me the scroll. I can picture that. I think we're meant to, to picture this, this scene of this colossal angel standing there and his voice like a roaring lion and he's intimidating and John goes up and says, hey, give me the scroll. And yet, it's on the authority of God that he does that. And he goes up and he, he does and he, he says, give this to me and the angel does. But he instructs John what to do with it. And it's a little strange. He says, look down at verse nine and he says to me, take and eat it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. That's not the first time we've seen imagery in the Bible of taking a scroll and eating it. In this vision, John was eating it in the vision, but it's, it's symbolic imagery. It's, it's like an object lesson, just like the object lessons in the Old Testament that the prophets used to carry out, and there were some really weird ones. Have you ever read through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, he's out smashing jars in public, and he's got a message that that's meant to communicate. He buries his underwear, digs them up later. Um, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's bizarre. They were ruined, and he says, this is just like you're ruined, and you're useless because of your idolatry. They were things that the prophets really did these things. They were object lessons, but they're meant to communicate something. And so when John, he eats this scroll it reminds us of Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah, he says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. 
What's he mean? Is he, how do you eat in God's words? Well, it's, it's symbolic of living by it, being consumed, consuming God's word, taking it in as nourishment. So what do we see that God's people, God's servant, is to take in his word as, as nourishment, to feed on his word. And, you know, Jesus, he rebuked the devil when he was tempted in Matthew 4. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then we see that actually this account here is very close, parallel to Ezekiel 3. Almost the same things happen that happen in Ezekiel 3. In Ezekiel 3, God commands him and says to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. And I ate it. And it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Same way John's told to eat God's plans to consume this little scroll, to live by it. What are you living by? Are you living by God's word? Are you living by the plans that he's, he's revealed, that he's opened up? This is not hidden. This is an open scroll. And what are God's plans and his purposes? He has revealed that his, the, mystery, the mystery of his purposes has been revealed in the good news of the gospel. Are we living by that? Are we consuming it? Are we feasting on it like John here? John's told to eat it consume it. It's going to be bitter to your stomach, but it'll be taste as sweet as honey. And so Don does that. Look down at verse 10. It says, I took that little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. Weird, but he did it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had taken it and eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. It, it tasted sweet to John in his mouth, as sweet as honey. It tasted good to him because God's plans are good. They are sweet. When you understand the purposes of God in the gospel to rescue a people for himself, to redeem all of mankind, to bring about his kingdom through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that becomes sweet. When you see that all of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus instead of us, that is sweet. When you see that one day God will punish all injustice, that is sweet. But it's also difficult because there is wrath to come for all who do not receive. There is wrath to come for all who do not repent and believe, for all the idolatrous people that we saw in the previous chapter. Not only that, the hard part of this word is it's sweet and it is wonderful. We can hang on to his precious promises that are true and secure and firm. At the same time, we know that we will go through tribulation. And that's what this is in the middle of. It's not that God's word was unpleasant. It was sweet and he loved eating it. But he had to speak some things that were going to be agonizing to him. That were gut-wrenching. Maybe because some of what he's been given to share is about suffering and persecution and opposition from the devil and martyrdom of the saints. Because he's already shared some of that. And that's more to come. You're going to see later that the dragon is actually going to be given permission to take the lives of the saints. But the sweetness is that they won't be harmed. There's an irony in that. It may seem like God's saints are conquered, but they are not. Just like Jesus, our surety, our hope is that he was not conquered. The, the, the devil thought that he defeated Jesus by killing him, by, by killing him and crucifying him on the cross. The forces of darkness rejoiced. What they did not realize is that although he died, God was going to raise him up. 
victorious, that truly evil did not harm him. We can be sure of the same thing. It is, it's sour in our stomachs. There is a bitterness to suffering and persecution and opposition from the devil. There's a bitterness to martyrdom. But we have a sweetness in our mouths, knowing that surely just as he has been raised up, we too will be raised up, ultimately unhurt. May also be because John loves God's word, he lives by it, it's a part of him. He also understands he's got to share that word with others. He's got a responsibility to share that word. And there's a message from God's word that is difficult to complain. And you know that if you are a believer, part of the good news of the gospel is sharing the bad news that unless you repent and turn from your sins, you're going to face the unmitigated wrath of God. You're going to face all this tribulation and suffering. And that is difficult. It's bitter. No one loves to communicate. You should never love or relish communicating God's judgment. Yeah, Morris says again, he says, the true preacher of God's word will faithfully proclaim the denunciations of the wicked it contains, but he does not do this with fierce glee. The more his heart is filled with the love of God, the more certain it is the telling forth of woes will be a bitter experience. John's grieved by the wickedness of man, the judgment to come, and yet he's told he has a mission, he has a part to play. Not only is he to take the scroll and eat it, He's to do something with it. And I think that's a model for the church as well. We're to take God's word. We're to take his plans. His plans have been opened, revealed in the gospel. We're to consume it. And then we're to do something with it. Look in verse 11. He was told, you must prophesy. You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. It's the same language about God's plans to bring a people to himself from every people and nation and language and tribe. But instead of saying tribe here, he says kings because he wants John to know that he doesn't need to be afraid to bring God's plans, to communicate his purposes, to prophesy, to bring that prophetic word of the gospel to even kings. What's that communicate? It means that God's word is superior to any earthly ruler. We don't have to be afraid. And yet we've been given this great commission to to eat God's plans, eat his word. We have a wonderful sweetness that we've been given in the gospel. We're meant to feast on it and then communicate it to peoples and nations and languages and kings. His commission and role as a prophet is unique. We're not not called to be prophets like that. But he's meant to be an example to these beleaguered churches and to the church today. The commission of eating God's word, it's, it's for all believers. All believers are to see this image that his plans stand firm and secure and there are no... There's no opposition to this angel. There's no opposition to God's plans. And that we're to eat his plans. And we're also to carry them out. If we truly get it, if we truly understand the gospel, then you'll know that we're meant to carry it out. That's, that's the commission we've all been given by Jesus. To go into all the world, proclaiming the good news of the gospel, teach him to obey everything that he's commanded. We can have confidence and courage in the face of the biggest giants. I like how the, the movie, the BFG, ended. Um, he takes the little girl before the queen, and the queen is affected, and they, she has a dream, and they get led on an expedition. They go, and they conquer. They go back to the land of the giants, and they conquer these troll-like evil giants, and they throw them in captivity. I thought, you know, that's a, that's a neat image, really, of what Jesus does. He's, he's taken us 
before the throne room of God, and then he has conquered every evil power, and he one day will put all evil under his feet. Our enemy is a defeated enemy. He may take our lives, but he can't touch us. He can't hurt our souls. You might not have it all figured out. You might not understand, but God's plans stand secure and firm. His plans in the gospel, they will be fully carried out. They will be fulfilled. And his people are secure and we're given this message to take and we do that without fear. This, this passage is not meant for us to, to fear. It's actually meant to give us courage and hope, confidence in God's plans. No matter what comes, come hell or high water, as the saying goes, the end is certain for his people. His word stands firm. Our part is to feast on his word and carry out his message. Amen? Well, let's pray and then we will give some instructions about the potluck. Father, thank you for this 